1: 2020 bringing a biblical perspective on life culture and current events weekdays on ucb's vision radio network find out more at vision.org.au
0: well it certainly is great to have you with us on this wednesday edition of 2020 and we're casting our vision across the oceans the other side of the world's israel and you might be familiar with the idea that yesterday there was to be a ceasefire uh, to be implemented between Israel and Hamas uh, over that uh, territory there in Gaza, well we're going to talk through some of the issues of the Middle East this hour and always great to be able to welcome the insights of Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst who does have her finger on the pulse when it comes to the background and the way these things seem to evolve. Uh, Elizabeth, welcome back to 2020. Great to talk to you.
1: Oh, Thanks for having me, Neil.
0: Elizabeth, you spend a lot of time monitoring what's going on in the Middle East and no doubt you've been looking uh, very closely at what's been happening between Hamas and Israel and, of course, uh, yesterday's proposed ceasefire that was brokered uh, by the Egyptians and uh, then ignored by the... Uh, the Hamas group who continued to fire some rockets into Israel and of course now the threat uh, that things will devolve and escalate even to the potential for a wider war. These sorts of things are so concerning. What are your thoughts on the things you've been monitoring over this past 24 hours?
1: Well I'm not surprised that the ceasefire did not hold. (coughs) um, Egypt rather was Reluctant to be involved at all because you've got to realize, um, Egypt just got rid of its Muslim Brotherhood government. The government that is now in control in Egypt is very anti the Muslim Brotherhood and they just, and they understand that Hamas is literally a military armed wing of the Muslim Brotherhood. So these are not, uh, they're all Sunni Muslims, but they're not allies. In fact, they're on opposite sides of, of the wider Middle East, uh, sort of
0: In arc, fact, I would say. some people are saying that uh, this is one area that uh, Egypt and Israel have in common, that they'd like to see uh, Hamas weakened uh, because of its, obviously, its Muslim Brotherhood uh, connections there. But they'd, both sides would like to see it weakened.
1: Well, I would say that all, everyone on the Sunni Arab side, so that's the Saudis, the Jordanians, the Egyptians, would all like to see Hamas. Uh, decimated, actually. In fact, there are, uh, reports in Egyptian media of Egyptian, of Arab, Sunni, Muslim, Egyptian, uh, commentators, uh, thanking Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, for his assault on Hamas and wishing him all the best and hoping he manages to, to crush Hamas because they're causing, uh, Arabs just so much grief. In fact, Pew, uh, the Pew, Pew um, research uh, that came out recently showed that uh, even amongst Palestinians, uh, sympathy for Hamas is in quite sharp decline. You know, the belligerence of Hamas is bringing massive suffering to the, to, uh, the Palestinians.
0: Well, what we've seen is uh, a ceasefire declared and then uh, a ceasefire ignored. And as I understand it, something like 47 rockets uh, were fired across the border into Israel. And uh, I guess when we come to the Israeli response, Benjamin Netanyahu's under a lot of pressure to take very, very strong action, isn't he?
1: Well, yes, he is. And you know, the, the really interesting thing, the, the thing that people need to understand about all Islamic terrorism, uh, and this, particularly this situation uh, with Hamas and Gaza, is it's very much an asymmetric conflict. Uh, Hamas is a mouse biting on the toe of an elephant. <laughs> you know, Hamas is just, is nothing compared to the, the Israeli military. If if the Israeli military wanted to, they could crush Hamas in in the blink of an eye. They don't do it because they're concerned about civilian casualties. And Hamas is embedded in civilian population centers and is quite willing to use civilians as human shields. In fact, they have fatwas uh, declaring that any uh, Palestinian Muslim or any Muslim who dies in crossfire is automatically to be regarded as a shahid as a martyr therefore you know they're completely expendable
0: okay so if there is a ground invasion which some people are talking about now uh, do you think that would be a swift uh, thing that would happen that uh, that that there'd somehow rather be a, a fairly quick resolution and a demilitarization of that gaza zone
1: it uh, might not be swift because Israel, for all the criticism it gets, is extremely concerned about civilian casualties, and this is all part of the whole asymmetric uh, conflict. Now, in the in the olden days, you know, a war was a war was between two forces that uh, went up against each other with both intending to win, both believing they could win. Uh, even in the animal kingdom, you know, the the animals, they puff out their chests and they beat their breasts and act scary and they go off to, to fight each other. In an asymmetric conflict, that's not what happens, and that's not what's happening uh, in the Middle East right now. Gaza, uh, the Hamas, knows it cannot win. It cannot win. As I said, it's like a mouse trying to take on an elephant. It is a band of uh, thugs taking on one of the most sophisticated military forces in the world. So what's it trying to do if it knows it's going to lose? It's trying to win a political, uh, war. It's trying to win a propaganda war. So it's, um, it's going after the, uh, the photographs. It's going after the photo opportunities of, of, uh, weeping Palestinian civilians. It's presenting itself as a victim, the victim of massive aggression. And this is what this is what happens. They provoke a, a situation and then they cry victim. And uh, what needs to happen for this to not continue is that Hamas needs to lose both the military conf- conflagration, which it is going to lose, and it needs to lose the propaganda war as well. So Muslims need to rise up against Hamas and say, "We will not have this anymore." And the international community needs to rise up and say, what you are doing is wrong. You are putting your own people at risk. You are using your own women and children as human shields. We condemn you. Not Israel, and if they could, if they could do that, then we might see uh, this sort of belligerent behaviour might come to an end.
0: I guess when you talk about the propaganda war, uh, we are about to receive more of the onslaught of the propaganda war, perhaps from both sides, because uh, while Hamas will be wanting to, as you say, present themselves as the victims. Uh, Israel is always on a defensive position, isn't it? Uh, to show that it is actually uh, not being the aggressor in this sense because they're defending their own territory, defending their own people in the actions that they take.
1: Yes, you know, it's interesting. Although Golda Meir, the one the, of the early or the first uh, Israeli prime minister, she, uh, she was famous for having said, better to have bad press than a good epitaph and uh what hap- what the trouble that so often happens now is israel is actually forced to hold back hold back hold back because they know that if uh if things don't go as cleanly as as they would like it to go they will be the ones not hamas they will be the ones on the end of us uh resolutions and sanctions and all sorts of abuse um, it's it's interesting one of the comments in egyptian media I think it was in Al-Aram, commented that uh, it's really interesting that, that Arabs in Egypt and even Arabs uh, in Gaza are, are speaking out against Hamas, while the Western media is busy speaking out against Israel. As they're saying everything's back to front, but it just makes you, it really does make you think, you know, what? Who's, who should we be uh, supporting here? And I'm not saying we shouldn't care about Palestinian civilians. Of course we should. But we need to see whose fault it really is that they are suffering so severely.
0: I'm amazed and I'm just reflecting on a... I saw a news report earlier on today. There was a reporter on the television, I can't even remember what station it was, standing outside a house that had been bombed by the Israelis. And part of their report was that the Israelis had telephoned in advance to tell any family that were in the house to flee the house because there was an attack coming. Hmm. There's a courtesy there that Israel certainly does appear to be showing uh, to try and not uh, hurt civilians, uh, but to bring their targeted attack against the Hamas militants. That
1: has always been Israel's standard practice over these last, you know, the decade uh, of these, like, intifadas and you might call them small-scale wars, you know, with Hezbollah and others. Israel always does this. It informs the occupants of the house, usually a house belonging to a senior, you know, jihadist organiser and figure and fighter. They will warn the family that they need to get out, they need to leave. If they're going to bomb an area where they know that there is an arsenal being kept, they will uh, warn the entire district that they need to clear out and you have to ask, why do they not do it? Uh, why is it that uh, when a Hamas leader is killed in his home, that his uh, wife, mother, sister, and six children are all are all there with him? Um, uh, I mean, they've just set themselves up for a wonderful photo opportunity. Really, it's it's an appalling thing, and I think people should be outraged by this, and, and not outraged as much at Israel as at her, at Hamas.
0: Well, Elizabeth, I want to invite our listeners to participate in our conversation today. So we'll open our talk back lines. You might have some thoughts on the threats of a wider war in the Middle East. Uh, you might have some thoughts on uh, those Islamic threats that are well known that come from groups like Hamas that they just want to annihilate the state of Israel. You might have some thoughts. You can share those. Uh, you could call us now on one eight hundred eighty-eight zero eighty-seven six. That's our talkback line number, one 800 880 876 We are going to move on to some more topics too. So if you have some thoughts on the Israel-Hamas conflict, uh, call now 1-800-880-876. Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst, is our guest. And we're talking through those issues. We'll also uh, talk in just a few minutes about how, as Christians, uh, we here in Australia look overseas to a conflict like that How might we be a people of prayer when it comes to the nation of Israel? We'll come back and talk some more in just a few moments. It's Neil Johnson with you on 2020. Our special guest this hour, Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst. We are talking about the conflict between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. So we're talking about something here in the Middle East and if you haven't caught up with the news, uh, there was a ceasefire proposal that was offered late on Monday night and it called for Israel and Hamas to stop firing on Tuesday without any preconditions and then launch talks in Cairo within 48 hours. Well, Israel's security cabinets, they approved the deal on Monday morning and Israel stopped its attacks on Gaza at 9 a.m. local time, but Hamas officials balked at the proposal, saying that they had never been consulted. And the rocket fire from Gaza continued unabated, and Israel then. Resumed military operations in the territory at 3 p.m. We are talking through uh, the issues uh, to do with Israel and Hamas in the Middle East, and uh, Elizabeth Kendall is with us. Elizabeth, in the last hour, in the last uh, segment, we were, began to talk about uh, some of the differences between religions, and uh, you raised an important point. Well, not all religions are the same. People think differently on these really important elements of. Uh, human value. And uh, so uh, let's just enlarge a little, if if we can, on the differences between uh, Islam and, of course, uh, we've got the Jewish religion. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's Christianity is the position that we are taking here. Uh, how do you actually assess the ideas that there are differences and help people to understand that, no, not everyone is the same?
1: Well, for me, the biggest difference between Islam and Christianity is that they work I would say exactly in opposite ways. So Islam is essentially a political and material religion, a culture. Uh, it has material political goals. The aim of, the, of Islam, the Islamic nation, is to uh, bring Allah's world under the control of Allah's law. And that involves seizing territory uh, governing over that territory and enacting Sharia law over that territory. This is a very materialistic and and political aim. And the Muslims who do this reap material war, rewards both here on earth, uh, you know, loot and booty and all the rest, and material rewards in heaven, where the uh, jihadis uh, receive, you know, their numerous virgins and doe-eyed young boys and all sorts of things in, in their paradise. Christianity works exactly the opposite way in that instead of coming down over a territory, you know, like a great big dome, like a big umbrella, kabang, and, in, and in, enacting a law over it, it works uh, by uh, addressing the the inner being of the individual. So it addresses the that nature of the human being, the nature of the human being deep inside their their being. And it works to, it says the human being is inherently sinful, and that's why we do the things that we do. That's why we lie, that's why we're selfish, that's why we're proud. What we need is a radical transformation of our nature. And the Holy Holy Spirit transforms uh, the nature of, of a person. And that person then is able to live differently and uh, to, to treat their neighbor with respect and to be more generous and to, and to live in a more Christ-like fashion. And they become that salt that makes things taste better, that bit of yeast that makes the texture better. They are the light that's in the darkness. It's a completely different, I would say an opposite view of how things work. Instead of coming over from the top, and imposing something, it works through the individuals and brings change through the change of the nature of the individual, exactly the opposite way. And,
0: and of course, uh, we have this in common as Christians uh, <clears throat> with those who are a part of the Jewish religion, <clears throat> pardon me, because uh, because we're this, this common. Ancestry, in that sense, that goes back into the what we call the Old Testament. So those commonalities, those things we share, and I guess when we are called the people of the book, uh, Christians and Jews, these things we have in common.
1: That's right. The, the Jews look upon the the law of God in the same way that Christians have looked upon the law of God as something which is good, something that God has given to us in grace. <laughs> not to repress us and ruin our lives and make us miss out on all the fun in life, but as as a grace to enable us to live well in the world. Uh, the law of God was God saying, I am the creator of this world. I made it. I, I made everything to do with it. I'm, I, I'm the one who made all the laws of science, all the laws of harmony and all the moral laws that hold this world together. And, and here is my advice for you that here are my laws if you want to live well in this world. And so we trust God and we keep his laws. It's a matter of, it's a matter of trust. That's how we show that we trust God because we believe that he was speaking in our interests. That when God speaks, he speaks in our interests, in love. And so we, uh, we follow his laws. And of course, the Christian goes one step further in that they then say, well, Jesus has come as the Messiah. He has died for our sins, enabling us to be cleansed within and so that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit who enables us to actually do what we find so difficult to do in our own strength, and that is keep the law of
0: God. Elizabeth, let's come back to this conflict between Israel and Hamas and broaden our perspective to see how it might fit in with other things that are happening in the Middle East. Now, you've been following too the conflict that's been happening in northern Iraq. And, of course, uh, we have spoken before probably a number of times about all of the issues about Syria, uh, the rise of this new organisation, ISIS or ISIS or ISIL, depending on uh, on uh, which uh, uh, organisation you feel like you're talking about. But when it comes to those things that are happening, uh, with the idea of a, a broader, new, uh, all-embracing caliphate uh, in uh, the Islamic world, is there, do you think, any uh, coincidence in the timing of what is happening uh, with Hamas in Gaza and this conflict with Israel?
1: Uh, well, I think there might be, because you could look at the conflict in Gaza and think, what on earth were they thinking? You know, I mean, why? Why now? And I sort of do wonder if they have been inspired and encouraged uh, by the uh, successes of of isis Uh, as you said they're also known as isil and now they're known as is they've changed their name once again to islamic state um i think they might be feeling quite inspired by their successes and uh you know uh, isis is is known to have elements uh in jordan and in in the palestinian territories so I, i wonder if that's is the reason why it's uh, kicked off at this particular time. Apart from that, I'm at a loss to know why they would actually uh, break what has been, you know, a number of years of sort of status quo...
0: Now earlier when we said uh, I wonder whether this will have a swift end if Israel uh, undertakes a a ground assault and uh, and takes over on the ground and uh, you said well it might not be as quick as you think it could be drawn out as I understand it there would still be thousands and thousands of rockets uh, still in the possession of Hamas uh, in Gaza Uh, I guess you could have a drawn out conflict that could last for a long time.
1: Well, I wouldn't be at all surprised if, um, if Egypt actually became involved against Hamas. Egypt has, uh, destroyed, people don't talk about Egypt. You know, people say, oh, Israel is so cruel, they've turned Gaza into a great big concentration camp, and they forget that Gaza actually has a border with Egypt, uh, and it has a crossing point there, the rougher crossing. So if they're inside a prison, in a concentration camp, what's Egypt doing? Well, Egypt is so fed up with Hamas, and so fed up with all the problems that uh, Hamas causes, and especially now that uh, Egypt is being ruled by Sisi, who is, you know, like Hamas's worst nightmare, uh, they have destroyed. I think I think it's about a thousand tunnels going between Egypt and uh, and Gaza. They've closed the crossing. Uh, some analysts believe that a lot of this, uh, the rocket fire and the, and the retaliatory fire and all the suffering in Gaza, is about, uh, could be about Hamas trying to get Egypt to reopen the Rafah crossing because uh, they've closed it. Because Hamas has been killing and kidnapping Egyptians as well. They've uh, killed numerous soldiers in the Sinai um, and they all been involved in the killing of numerous soldiers in Sinai. So Egypt's just fed up with them, and they've, they've closed the crossing, they've, they've uh, blown up the tunnels, and uh, there are analysts believing that maybe one of the triggers for this conflict, or one of the things behind the conflict, is that Hamas is trying to get Egypt to reopen the, the rougher crossing.
0: Elizabeth Kendall is our guest, Religious Liberty Analyst, and the talkback line is still open. If you'd like to make your contribution to our conversation today, 1-800-880-876. We're going to evolve our conversation a little because it's so valuable, uh, these insights from Elizabeth Kendall. We're going to talk a little about Sudan in just a few moments too. So do stay with us if you've got a contribution to make about what's going on in the broader Middle East, In the conflict that's going on in the broader Middle East, you can call us 1 800 880 876. Back with more, Elizabeth Kendall, in just a few moments. 2020 on Vision. Neil Johnson with you on this Wednesday edition of 2020. Elizabeth Kendall's our special guest this hour, Religious Liberty Analyst, also with the Melbourne School of Theology, Centre for the Study of Islam and Other Faiths. We're talking about the Middle East, the conflict that is going on between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. And broadening our sights a little now to look to another conflict that's going on, uh, this time in Africa, in the nation of Sudan. Elizabeth, you've been monitoring along the Sudanese conflict as well. There's some similarities, aren't there, because of the Islamic basis for uh, these conflicts that are happening throughout the Middle East and into various nations in Africa.
1: Yes, well, it was um, it was uh, Islam and the Arab. Arab Islamist regime in Khartoum, it was their determination to impose Islam on the African Christians across the South that that triggered decades of civil war in Sudan until we got to the point that the South Sudanese uh, broke away and seceded, and uh, we've just uh, observed their three-year anniversary of South Sudan as an independent state. And now, of course, the the absolute tragedy is that South Sudan has itself descended uh, into civil war. And I I find that absolutely heartbreaking. Sometimes I wonder if the suffering of the Sudanese church will ever end.
0: (laughs) Well, this is often our focus when we're talking about nations like Sudan. And, of course, the new nation of South Sudan is that uh, there were a lot of Christians a population of Christians in South Sudan, which are really uh, under tremendous threat with all of the violence that's going on there now.
1: Mm, Yes, there's about 4 million people uh, facing famine, uh, imminent famine too. So the the seven months of civil war has left uh, uh, over, uh, I think it's over 10,000 dead and 1.5 million South Sudanese displaced. And large numbers of those are in refugee camps, uh, sharing those refugee camps with uh, Christians from Sudan, the Nuba from Sudan, and uh, who have uh, fled Sudan as refugees, and these camps are massively overcrowded. Um, they're unsanitary now because they just can't cope with the volume of people, uh, and they're becoming disease-ridden very quickly. And the groups that run these camps, groups like Samaritan's Purse, which is a phenomenal organisation, it's always there when everybody else has left. You know, Samaritan's Purse will still be there. Uh, they are struggling uh, greatly. And uh, the, the group that I work with, um, Christian Faith and Freedom in Canberra, uh, they've been sending money to Samaritan's Purse uh, to, for, uh, to aid the refugee camps in Sudan because they're not only now housing... Uh, hundreds of thousands of Nuba refugees who have had to flee south. They're also uh, seeing an influx of Sudanese, who are uh, South Sudanese, who are fleeing from um, from the ethnic uh, ethnic civil war that's raging around them. They're in dire need. That because of the conflict, no one's been able to plant their fields. And now the rainy season has come. The roads are closed, uh, and there will not be any harvest. Uh, Medicine Sans Frontiers has warned that about four million South Sudanese, and that will include the Nuba refugees as well, are facing, or well, they would be on top of that, I think, are facing the prospect of famine uh, really setting in over the next few months. It's, it's an incredibly serious situation. Four million. And it's, I, I don't even think I've heard this on the news mm. Uh, you have to be. You have to be getting emails from, you know, Médicine Sans Frontiers and monitoring the situation in Sudan to actually know about it.
0: And that's why uh, your Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin and uh, some of the other websites that you are have set up uh, and with all of this information and i often am encouraging people to uh, google elizabeth kendall and get some insight into what's happening in some of these nations we're talking about uh, we've just been talking about sudan we have uh, previously been talking about uh, what's been going on in the middle east israel and the conflict with hamas uh, still taking some calls let's take a call from john who is in the pilbara hello john welcome to 2020 John, are you with us? John in the Pilbara, are you with us? We might have to come back to John. Well, I was looking forward to uh, getting a weather report from the Pilbara Good there. Tasmania <laughs> one
1: minute, the Pilbara the next. It's amazing. Oh, I'd like
0: to see if he's still. Are you there, John? John, are you are you there? No. We don't have John on the phone. Uh, Never mind. uh, We'll continue. If you do have a comment to make, uh, time running out, 1-800-880-876. If you'd like to be a part of our conversation, 1-800-880-876. Let's continue talking about Sudan because the face of the conflict in Sudan, of course, of recent times, has been... Uh, the lady Mariam Ibrahim. And uh, have you been monitoring the progress with the Mariam Ibrahim story at all, Elizabeth?
1: Uh, Yes, I have. And she's still stuck in the uh, American embassy in in, uh, Sudan. So she's not out of the country yet. Um, uh, She was... Her her, her, um, apostasy uh, death sentence was overturned and she was uh, sent with her husband and children to a safe house when they tried to leave the country the next day, they were stopped by national security forces at the airport. And this is a branch of government that would be very unhappy about her acquittal. Anyway, so they stopped them at the airport, and um, it seems that Miriam's papers were not entirely in order. Uh, they're just desperate to get out. I mean, they've had death threats uh, from family members and uh, Islamic organizations are fatwas against them, so they're quite keen to get out of the country. So they were arrested at the airport and um, held in custody there. When they were released from custody in the airport, they went straight to the American embassy, and uh, they've got a little makeshift uh, area there with a few mattresses on the floor, and that's where they've been ever since. Apparently, Daniel, this is Miriam's husband, has been uh, petitioning the U.S. Uh, State Department for a spousal visa for his wife, Miriam, for some three years. Um, it's just completely bizarre why he hasn't been able to get her out to America before now. And I don't really know why it's taking so long. I know that her family is uh looking to appeal the ruling that saw her death sentence overturned. And I know that the uh, National Security Services are seeking to have her charged with falsifying documents. So uh, the American embassy is going to have to work pretty hard, I think, and be pretty serious about getting her out of the country alive and well.
0: I was talking to one commentator uh, just uh, two or three weeks back, and uh, they were saying that while Miriam Ibrahim's story is one that has made the global headlines, uh, this particular person—I think it was Joe from Open Doors—was reflecting on the fact that there are a thousand more like her in uh, in other nations, and I think she mentioned Eritrea at the time. But uh, but this is this is the thing, isn't it? There might be one Miriam Ibrahim, and uh, she has got some headlines. There, but she is the face of so many other Christians who are under persecution in that nation and many others.
1: That's right. In fact, there's another uh, another woman in Sudan. In Sudan, I think her name is Faisa, uh, who um, whose parents had converted from Islam to Christianity before she was born. Uh, she was raised as a Christian. She's now in her 30s. She married a South Sudanese Christian man who had who has recently fled or before the war broke out probably, fled to South Sudan for refuge, fled persecution in Sudan, and she hasn't managed to join him at this stage. But she had to go to the um, the registry office or, or some sort of office where her details were going to be uh, looked at, and the person in the office acknowledged that her name was a Muslim name and questioned why she was calling herself, a saying she was a Christian when she had a Muslim name before she knew it. She was arrested. Her marriage was annulled, and she was charged with apostasy. So she's in prison in exactly the same situation as Miriam Ibrahim. And I, I hate to say this. It sounds like a, an, a horrible thing to say, but I think you know Miriam and Daniel had these beautiful wedding photographs that were just like candy for the media, you know. Mm. And so they, be, the media, took them up. And then you've got someone like Fraser who's just stuck there um with a muslim name in a in a more remote part of sudan and she doesn't have the same sort of people behind her not only that there's a lot of in in the media you tend to find there's a bit of a okay been there done that move on sort of attitude to these sorts of stories you know there's a tendency to say well we just dealt with that issue you know apostasy in sudan we don't need another one now we want something different so the media tends to have a I have a short attention span on these issues
0: elizabeth kendall's our guest religious liberty analyst One 880 876 if you'd like to contribute to our conversation marie is from malden in victoria hello marie welcome to 2020 oh hi um marie yeah, what's well, your contribution to our conversation today
1: oh i just had to say about the difference between israel and gaza i'm not a palestinian's but um, Israeli children were painting on bombs for Palestinian children. And the boy they kidnapped the other week had petrol poured down his throat and mm-hmm. set alight. And all those... I mean, I don't know what they expect the Palestinians to... They say Israel has a right to defend itself, but what about Palestine? Yes, the, I think one biggest, of the things, the things that's thing quite interesting done. is the difference in, in the response and the reaction to these killings. Uh, when the three... So the three Jewish teenagers were kidnapped on their way home from a religious school, three 15- and 16-year-old boys. There was actual celebration in Gaza and, uh, and in through the Palestinian territories. In fact, on, on Fatah's Facebook page, this is Fatah uh, in the West Bank, on their Facebook page they have a cartoon of a Palestinian with a fishing rod and that fishing rod had caught three rats and each rat has on it a Star of David, and it represents the three these three young boys that were kidnapped and killed yeah, so going home, so okay and which is an, an appalling situation. Now, when the Palestinian boy was so brutally and horribly tortured to death and killed, uh, the response in Israel was quite different. And every person who I saw uh, interviewed on different news channels after that killing was horrified by it. And say, well, this is terrible. You know, a killing is a killing, and we—they have to, the the killers of that Palestinian boy must be brought to justice. Uh, there is there is a difference.
0: And I guess, and Marie's still with us, uh, mm-hmm. Marie. Yeah, I guess uh, not everybody on either side will always do the right thing. Is that what exactly. you're uh, you're highlighting?
1: Well, of course. I mean, they're—I kill- mean, look at all the women and children they're just killed in the bombing. That's you know, for a revenge for three boys, apparently. I mean, there's individuals in either case, not the whole population. Mm-hmm. And there's not only um, Muslims in Palestine; there are Christians. And... Oh. oh yes, no, that's that's understood, yeah. and it's understood too that there's a that people are diverse. You know, um, within every population, there are radicals who'd like to go out and kill kill people who are different to them. And there are good and godly people who, um, who have a good heart and would love to see peace. So that diversity is understood. The, um, the response from Israel wasn't actually primarily because of the three boys that were taken. It was because Hamas suddenly started uh, on the 11th of June just firing absolute massive quantities of rockets at southern Israel. There was an, an absolute barrage. Okay. Just
0: Marie uh, to from me. Malden in Victoria, I want to thank you for your contribution to our conversation today. And, uh, Elizabeth, to point people to your websites, uh, the easiest thing is to, say, Google Elizabeth Kendall and you'll find the Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin and uh, uh, some wonderful blogs there. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your insights today and always appreciate you taking time to be a part of 2020.
1: Thanks for having me, Neil.
0: Thanks for listening to Vision. You might have noticed we do things differently to the other stations, so put us in your radio preset and drop by any time.